0: Give a speech as if I know what I'm going to say. Talk slow, build up, play with tone and inflection just a bit. Pace a little. Pause. Volume. Pause. Look around, make eye contact. Pause. These skills are my comfort blanket. I have sharpened those parts of communication skills so that I can provide something of value and substance and transformation on these holidays, because if I'm going to be honest, I'm a little baffled. You're really going to listen to a third sermon in 10 days from me? You are sitting there expecting me to come up with something else meaningful, something else thoughtful and intriguing on this holiest of days? Why? (laughs) Are you sure about this decision? Who am I to share my thoughts with you again? And honestly, the bigger part, what happens if I don't have any more words to share? We don't always feel... Like we have the authentic words to speak, even if we take the time to try and discover them. Often this comes up as imposter syndrome. This notion that even if we've put the time and the effort and the heart in, sometimes we still feel like an imposter. Like, is everyone really going to accept what I have to say? I've had imposter syndrome so badly at times that I have been horrified to let someone read my work. I've insisted instead on spending probably five to ten times as long for me to sit in their office and share my words because I was afraid that the words alone, without that crutch of delivery, wouldn't be good enough. So where does this notion of imposter syndrome come from? Is it Is this not the holiday of authenticity? Is this not where we're supposed to put our focus and attention and our hearts into a process? So if we know that, if we know that this is where we're supposed to be most vulnerable and honest, then what do we do with that imposter syndrome? There's this wonderful story the rabbis tell about the oven of achnai, Don't worry there's no quiz, you don't have to remember the words, but basically there's a new kind of oven, and the rabbis argue about whether or not it would be kosher. The details are something along the line of how the grout works and whether or not you can kosher it in between, but that's not the point of the story. The point is, the rabbis really argue about this oven. I mean, it is basically a full-blown debate with all the rabbis involved. And one rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, is so convinced that he is right that he cries out for supernatural proof. If I am right, let that carob tree show it. And the carob tree jumps out of the ground and dances across the room. <laughs> the other rabbis say, not enough. He says, okay, if I am right, let that stream flow backwards. And It does. And finally says, if I am right, let the walls of this very Beit Midrash start to cave in. And as he is doing so, Rabbi Joshua steps forward and says, stop. And the walls stop. They don't go back out of respect for Rabbi Eliezer, but they don't continue out of respect for Rabbi Joshua. Now, you might be confused as to why I'm talking about magic tricks inside of this story. But here's the thing. Rabbi Eliezer finally gets so frustrated that he cries out, if I am right... God will prove it. And a voice from heaven says, why are you arguing with Rabbi Eliezer? He is right. And Rabbi Joshua responds, the Torah is not in heaven. That's what we just read. The Torah is not in heaven. He responded this way because the Torah, which was given by God, To humankind at Sinai specifically instructs those who follow it are to be looked at as receiving Torah as their source and guide. Torah makes clear at this end of Deuteronomy that we just read that the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. Rabbi Joshua's response is the expression that even though Torah is holy, we have authority. The Torah is not just a document of mystery that we have to innately find its meaning, but instead it's a document from which laws are created, human debate is engaged with, and we have the authority and in part the authorship of its text. Torah belongs to us. Talmud is our authorship with divine endorsement. The argument are holy even with human authorship because the intentionality behind our text is divine. We're not imposters. You all have divine endorsement. Whether or not you believe that is a separate question, but to know that you are divinely endorsed is rather important. What that means, however it might manifest, is a question to interpretation. In our Bible, the word nefesh, which many of you might know to mean soul, doesn't mean soul in Tanakh. In our earliest writings, the word nefesh actually means throat. You see, the writers of our sacred texts had this notion that our connection to God was our voice. It was the sound of one's voice, it was the power of the words that they would be able to produce. It was the notion that we could hear all the other voices in the room. I had a teacher in rabbinical school, Rachel Adler, who liked to teach that everything in Jewish is Jewish, everything in Judaism is metaphor. (laughs) Nothing is not metaphor, she would say. Why? The need we have as humans is so rich, so real, that we need metaphor to contextualize all of our experiences. This gives us an incredible breath and permission to know that we can add and elevate our experiences. Metaphor is not concrete. Therefore, there will always be room for experimentation and risk and thought. In morning prayers, there's Sukheda Zimrod. There's a prayer called Nishmat Kolhai, And inside of this prayer, it says, Even if our mouths were full of song as the sea, and our tongue full of joy as countless waves, and our lips of praise as wide as the sky's expanse, and were our eyes to shine like the sun and the moon, we still could not adequately thank you, God. Sometimes we will never have all the resources we need. We will never have enough words to adequately pay homage to the things that we love about the world, to appreciate what we have. Yet, how many emotions do we have that we can adequately put words to? Truthfully, we don't and I'm glad. Wouldn't that reduce so much of the experience of emotion if we could just capture it into words alone? Instead, we create placeholder words that allow us to live in both experiences. We label the emotion. We might even add some words in, but we still sit with it, unable to explain fully. What happens when we know a moment is here, when we know we have responsibility, and we still can't find the words? It's 9.45, I'm sitting in my office, and I'm changing my search. I'm not, it's printed, but that's the idea. You can't find the words to express our true feelings and desire to change. Don't feel like we've suffered enough to be forgiven. That's a very Jewish experience. It's another sermon altogether. But how does our tradition respond? Our tradition responds by handing you the words, gives you the transgressions. We literally will be listing out the different transgressions. We'll provide you with the words to channel remorse. And we do so in the plural. So that we've covered all of our bases, given enough coverage to all of society, so that if someone's not ready to take all that responsibility, or not ready to find all those words, that they still have the opportunity to make amends and to repent. And with such important topics, we cannot take the risk of inauthentic words. So instead, we are given the gift of the words. You can always change them. You can always tweak them, and we can't control what you think while you say each one, but we'll take off the pressure of having to find the words. That's the beauty of prayer. It's also metaphor, it's truth, it's placeholder, it's a resource for us to engage more authentically and not feel the pressure to be responsible for new content. Even more, our tradition says you don't have to keep creating. If something is profound, if something you heard is worth sharing or only adding slightly to, we have a mechanism for that. We say the words, "Beshem OMRO, in the name of our teacher. That we can lean on our sages. We can lean on those who we've learned from. We can speak their words, giving them credit and build upon them. It's not always about original words. I know we think we need to come up with something original to say. Sometimes it's about breathing new breath into words that already resonate. Sharing what has moved us. And sometimes words simply aren't the only means to communicate and express our thoughts, sometimes we have to remove words altogether. Bim, bam, bim, 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 bam, bim, 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 bam, yaba, dabba, doo doo, bim, bam, bim, 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 bam, bim, 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 bam. You know, bim bam. You know, that nursery school Shabbat blessing that's so prolific in our community that we can all sing it. It's for all ages. It's not juvenile. It's beautiful. You know what bim-bom means? Nothing. Adam was listening when he was in the ECC. I love it. Bim-bom doesn't mean anything. Bim-bom is gobbledygook. It's a prayer that we use to create the environment of Shabbat and it's absolutely baby babble. And yet it's not nonsense at all. It celebrates our power to have intention, our power to have joy. We take, we're taken away from having to find the right words and are given permission instead to simply be, to be given permission to create the holy container, the holy vessel that this entire community gets the experience to be a part of. Our tradition knows that in some of those moments that we don't need words at all, and yet, ironically, our tradition has also given us nonsense words to put into the wordless spaces. If that's not the most Jewish thing about this sermon, I'm not sure what is. You don't need words, we'll give you some anyways. What do they mean? Nothing, but you needed some words. We've attributed wordless words to our nigunim. You start to sing a song, is it la 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 or digi digi die? There's no words. But you all know which wordless word we're supposed to use. Take away the pressure, our tradition says. Sit back, relax. Here is what you need. Just speak with soul. So who am I? That's how I began this sermon to you. Who am I? Why me? Why my voice? I truly meant those questions. They weren't designed for a cheap laugh, and they were certainly not meant for self-deprecation. The answer is actually clear. We are all God's partners in this world, and as caretakers for the world and our community, the answer is simple. I am someone. I am someone, and therefore my voice contains truth about this world. Original words, repeated words, made up words, as long as they are coupled with heart, they scream truth. One of the most beautiful pieces of our tradition is that all voices hold the same validity to God. There is no conduit structure in Judaism. My voice is not heard by God any more so than yours. I am someone. You are someone. You are someone, and your voice not only deserves to be heard, it needs to be. And so does yours, and so does yours, and so does yours, and so does yours. And if you can't find the words, lean on our faith. Lean on what's already been spoken. In this day of truth and vulnerability, come share your truth. Share your voice with me. I promise I want to celebrate each and every one of your brilliance. Gamar Khatimatova, may you be written in the book of life and may you have the confidence to know you're a co-author of that book as well.